Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 93 of This Week in FCPA, the week ending March 9, 2018, the Hell Hath No Fury edition. This Week in FCPA is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally across all almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and medium-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 500 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, please visit this month's sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at their website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I would like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, Episode 93, for the week ending March 9th, 2018, The Hell Hath No Fury Edition. As always, I'm joined by my cohort and co-host, Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. Good to be with you. It's, uh, we're getting a day jump on the weekend, and we're taping this uh, Thursday morning, so uh, let's jump right in. Great. Well, we had, a, I thought, a really interesting week of compliance and ethics stories, so let's just start with uh, what can only be termed as karma is a bitch on the ethics front, <laughs> where we have uh, Wells Fargo is having its soul investigated by nuns. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I thought that up myself, but that's actually a um, headline from an article in Deal Breaker by Thornton McNerney. McErney. I don't know if he wrote the headline or not, but I'm going to give a tip of the compliance hat to him. Uh, uh, also appearing in uh, Deal uh, Bloomberg and the Financial Times, it's a story about a group called the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility, who were institutional shareholders in Wells Fargo. This group included the Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia, one of your old stomps, um, who want the bank to perform a root cause analysis uh, to determine which uh, led to or allowed the recent spate of scandals which had befallen the banking giant. Um, it was really interesting because Wells Fargo has agreed to do so, and it says it will publish a standards report which would identify the systemic culture and ethical root causes of recent scandals. And this root cause analysis would work to assess the impact of the bank's malpractice on customers and would set out its plans to instill a commitment to high ethical standards among employees going forward. Uh, I thought this was uh, obviously very, very interesting. The uh, sister Nora Nash, um, who oversees the retirement funds for the Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia, was quoted in the Bloomberg piece with the following. There were a culture where they believe their vision and values have carried them for the past 30 years and we're going to we're continuing to carry them. Obviously, there was a tremendous risk in their culture, and we needed to take a serious look at the code of ethics, accountability, and really look at the needs of the customer and the community. Um, 
And really on the final word on this, I want to uh, circle back to Thornton McErney, who said the following. If Tim Sloan, that's the uh, CEO of Wells Fargo, thought that Elizabeth Warren was a dogmatically intractable pain in the ass, wait until he ends up face-to-face with an actual nun peering at him from under her habit and musing, evil can be done by simply doing nothing, Timothy. Mmm, that is good schadenfreude. So, uh, you know, <laughs> don't piss off hey, the it's, nuns. it's a good... It's a good day anytime you can say schadenfreude, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, when you can capture the zeitgeist, it's it's certainly a one day for compliance. Um, we also had, uh, back in the news, our old friends, BSGR. Uh, that's the Benny Steinman's Resource Group, um, uh, who went into receivership this week. And uh, for those who may have forgotten the story, they were alleged to have uh, bribed a wife of a then uh, president for life of the um, uh, or dictator of uh, the West African country of Ghana um, in an attempt to strip away mining rights, which were previously awarded to Rio Tinto uh, and uh, obtain them. They were successful in obtaining these mining rights. Uh, unfortunately, the um, dictator whose wife they bribed, or allegedly bribed, I should say, had the temerity to die eight days later after he uh, signed the New Deal. And the subsequent Ghanaian government stripped uh, BSRG of this um, of this uh, concession. So um, we had a real uh, a great uh, in the fiction is excuse me uh, the FCPA is stranger than fiction category. We had a representative, alleged representative of BSRG, go to meet with the wife number four in Florida, where she had uh, immigrated to, try to obtain the originals of the uh, contracts, uh, and ha- he was arrested uh, at the airport in Florida. Uh, we've not had any FCPA prosecutions, but BSRG is uh, under uh, criminal and civil investigation in several countries, and they said that um, the uh, receivership filing uh, was because of the legal expenses they'd occurred. So uh, I can't wait for more resolution on this one. This story was so big, Jay, that uh, Patrick Radden Keefe wrote a piece in The New Yorker about it back in 2013. Um, yeah, and we, we've linked to that in the show notes. So if you've got a, a good cup of coffee and, and want to read a tale, that's uh, certainly there for you to do. So, Jay, Bill Coffin continues just uh, his uh, preseason home run string on his weekly column. You want to tell us about uh, why your data security headache has only just begun? Sure. And I guess last week he had a grand slam. So what comes after the grand slam? Do we uh, start all over again? The Penta. The Penta Slam. Penta. So um, basically, uh, what Bill is looking at is uh, our good friends Uber, and uh, once again, uh, they are in trouble. And the state of Pennsylvania has uh, filed a data breach notification to them. And the Pennsylvania lawsuit contends that since some thirteen thousand five hundred Uber drivers were affected by the breach the state can seek up to $1,000 in damages for each affected driver, making this a $13.5 million suit. And although $13.5 million is nothing to sneeze at, you know, to a company like Uber, it's not a big thing. What the big thing is that Bill chose to focus on is that we are getting closer and closer to May 25th, 
which is the day of the EU general data uh, protection requirement regulations when they come into effect. Um, You've been doing a podcast with our good friend Jonathan Armstrong from Quarterly Compliance. So we're going to hit that up a little bit later. But um, the points that Bill kind of makes is there is almost each state has its own data protection laws. And um, that is true for all states except for Alabama and South Dakota. So basically um, what Bill has is a quick three-step prescription on what you should do. And number one, uh, first, you should look at the most stringent regulatory regimes that are there and base your program to comply with those. And we usually do recommend that from an FCPA perspective. So if you want to use an example when the um uh when the when the new laws came out in uh the UK and they were more expansive than the FCPA here in the US we would recommend that you should uh build your program to the more uh stringent uh program so basically he said that we should uh build global risk and build a globally compliant pro- compliance program with clearly defined roles Number two is that you should make sure and adjust your culture to take protection of your clients seriously. One of Uber's problems was has been a toxic culture that manifested itself in a number of fortunate ways, including certain disdain for its drivers. And number three, you should really invest in some serious cybersecurity. Uh, this, he points out, sounds a bit elementary, but many firms simply whistle in the dark here and accept an outside risk to their own enterprise as well as to the safety of their data. So everybody seems to get cyber, cyber, uh, get religion on cybersecurity after the fact when it's already too late. But consider if you had not had a major data breach yet, it probably is only because you haven't detected the one. So keep that in mind and invest in your own risk management. So, um, really good advice. And, uh, once again, Uber's in the headlines. So what can you do? (laughs) So, um, uh, looks like Canada is going to join the uh, group of countries that uses deferred prosecution agreements. What did you find interesting about that, Jay? Yep. So this is something we picked up from uh, Jacqueline Jager over at Compliance Week. And um, there's another article that I have to give you the um, the link to. Uh, it was in um, Global Investigations, but uh, it interviewed the head of the uh, World Bank Sanctions Committee. And in this article, it says that one of the prime uh, potential beneficiaries of going to the DPA process in Canada is a company called SNC-Lavalin. And what happened was that they uh, settled up with the World Bank, and then the World Bank uh, shared this information with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So um, basically what they're saying is uh, under the current Canadian criminal justice system, prosecutors have two choices concerning corporate defendants to either prosecute or not to prosecute. But uh, in a report published by the government on February 22nd, 
Um, they summarized the results of a public consultation it conducted last year on whether or not to introduce the concept of a DPA in Canada. The consensus as summarized in the report is that the advantages of the Canadian DPA regime would outweigh any possible disadvantages. So as we've been uh, you know, reading uh, in the news over the past few weeks, not only is Canada coming on board, but they like this idea in Australia. They like the idea in Singapore. So it appears that, uh, once again, just like the investigations that uh, the FBI and the DOJ have kind of been at the forefront and bringing across the world, it seems that the uh, idea of GPAs is catching on. Um, also, Jacqueline talks about uh, corporate monitors, which is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. And as part of the consultation, participants were also asked how compliance monitors should be selected. And uh, it was emphasized that monitors needed to be qualified, objective, free from any potential conflict of interest, and capable of undertaking the task at hand. Uh, some people believe that the monitor should be mutually agreed upon by the prosecutor and the companies, while others felt differently. And um, just to tie it back to my comments at the beginning, so SNC-Lavalin um, basically uh, is set up to be probably the, uh, the first uh, guinea pig on this, and uh, to tie back to the beginning, uh, the RCMP, Canada's National Police Force, alleges that between 2001 and 2011, SNC-Lavalin and two of its subsidiaries gave U.S. $38 million to, drumroll please, the Libyan government officials to use their position to influence government decisions. Uh, recently, during its fourth quarter uh, 2017 earnings call, the CEO of the company, Neil Bruce, said he hopes that the Canadian government enacts a DPA regime and that we, being the company, would like to be able to engage with relevant authorities around potentially a form of the DPA. However, that's not in their control and they really need to wait. Bruce added that if the government does not bring to Canadian businesses a DG, DPA regime, the company does have a workaround plan to reach a resolution. Uh, he closed by saying, I think there are alternatives that we could and we do look at, but basically we prefer the first option, a.k.a. DPA. So I thought uh, certainly uh, good news um I think for, for all corporate practitioners, and I guess I was interested, Jay, on the uh, list that they put together of uh, what would uh, be considered, and I thought that that was uh, certainly um, useful and helpful. It is uh, basically the list, I think, that the Department of Justice and SEC would use, but once again, it emphasizes uh, how you can receive uh, much greater benefit through cooperation uh, with the regulators as opposed to um, one trying to hide it or two uh, then trying to fight such a um, such an investigation. So uh, we've seen a, a number of countries, I think, move towards the DPA model. I would certainly say that's because of the success uh, that the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission have had over the now past 
uh, what's it, 2018, 14, 13, 14, 15 years in utilizing DPAs. And I think this will uh, certainly be a welcome development in Canada. But also, Jay, I hope that it will lead uh, even more countries to um, putting a D- DPA program in place uh, and then really following on, as you suggested, with uh, corporate monitors uh, as a way to not only assure compliance with the deferred prosecution agreement, but as a way to communicate with the uh, the prosecutors and make sure the public interest of having the company moving forward and putting in a robust compliance solution is uh, still followed. Great. So next up, Tom, uh, we have an article about Kobe Steel. What is happening with that fine organization? So for those who have uh, may not have re- recalled, Kobe Steel admitted in October of last year falsifying quality specifications on product ships to hundreds of customers literally across the globe. Um, and it turns out that uh, it was a little bit broader than that, as, um, as uh, Warren Buffett might say, once you see one cockroach in the kitchen, there are probably some others. And uh, Henry Cutter, writing in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, said that on Tuesday, uh, Kobe announced, Kobe Steel announced a probe by an external investigator found more factories fake data than had been previously disclosed with some falsifications going back to the 1970s. Uh, the company had previously said it only went back uh, 10 years and it increased the number of customers who had uh, been affected by this. The um, uh, president of uh, Kobe Steel, uh, Mr. Uh, Kawasaki has said he will resign effective April 1. And I would have to say that uh, given uh, his failure around this, it's uh, probably uh, very clear that they just had to uh, clean house and uh, try and not only clean up the problem they had, but really, Jay, on the reputational side, how can you ever trust a steel supplier who has admitted that for as a corporate policy, uh, they have uh, falsified uh, specifications. Uh, the potential liability to you as a steel consumer or user is uh, is very, very high. And then the potential for uh, actual tragedy because the steel is not uh, two specifications uh, is equally high. So lots of trouble from Kobe Steel. Uh does that really augur for uh, some tariffs to that steel that's coming from uh, from Japan, or should we just kind of like leave that stuff alone? Well, uh, you know that you re- really raise an interesting point. I guess I would go the other way. Uh, why would you ever buy steel where the uh, steel manufacturer has admitted they are um, uh, lying on the certifications for any price? Uh, let alone 25% or 50% or whatever it is, the discount below American steel. If there's a reason to buy American, it's the quality. And um, uh, the users of steel need to understand that. And I think the Kobe steel uh, imbroglio really uh, drives home why you should buy American anyway, Jay. So you don't need a tariff. There you go. Uh, Next up, we have some uh, belated news that was uh, coming out of the ABA White Collar Crime Conference last uh, week in San Diego, and this was announced on uh, last Thursday. John Cronin, Acting Assistant Attorney General of the Criminal Division, uh, told the ABA group that while the FCPA corporate 
enforcement policy only applies in the FCPA context, we intend to embrace, where appropriate, a similar approach and similar principles rewarding voluntary self-disclosure, full cooperation, and timely and appropriate remediation in other contexts. Mr. Cronin's willingness to take a similar approach may raise the chances that companies could avoid outside prosecution outside of bribery matters. And I got a couple quotes from white-collar practitioners. Uh, Zane Meminger, a former U.S. attorney in Philadelphia who now works at Morgan Lewis, said, it would make me more hopeful that we could get to the right place ultimately, but it's still fraught with risks. And with another perspective, Robert Luskin from Paul Hastings, who's been a monitor a couple times, said the more uncertainty remains regarding what the Justice Department might do, the less likely companies are to turn themselves in. The point of the program is a commitment. So I know that we quite often talk about wanting to have transparency. And from a business perspective, you want to have some assurity of um, an outcome. And especially if you're going to go to the government and you're being offered declination. Do you think uh, this uh, setup will work in other areas of um, prosecution within the DOJ? Well, it's a it's a really interesting development. I guess Jay is a former in-house uh, general counsel, uh, corporate uh, uh, legal department uh, employee. Uh, I would say it's a welcome development. It's uh, not clear uh, in what areas uh, precisely the Department of Justice will utilize this. This um, the first one was given to Barclays, obviously in the financial services arena. Um, it's not clear if this will also extend to uh, securities fraud or uh, other cases. But anytime you have the government working towards um, creating uh, a resolution and a remedy, which not only resolves the problem, but uh, penalizes the company somewhat, uh, because we had a, a declination with disgorgement here, essentially, um, but you got you had cooperation, and, and the government or this Justice Department seems to be leaning towards having more of a partnership uh, with corporations and banks and other institutions and entities to uh, fight uh, crime. And Jay, if I could just take a moment to uh, uh, highlight some of the things from the Barclays uh, declination letter. Uh, any of our listeners who are uh, FCPA practitioners or even aficionados will recognize some of these. And I just quote from the declination letter itself, the department's decision to close its investigation of this matter was based upon a number of factors. Number one, Barclays' timely, voluntary self-disclosure of the matters. Two, Barclays' thorough and comprehensive investigation. Three, Barclays' full cooperation in this matter, including its provision of all known relevant facts about the individuals involved or responsible for the misconduct. Four, the steps Barclays has taken and continues to take to enhance its compliance program. Five, Barclays' full remediation, including its agreement to provide full restitution to HP and disgorge any ill-gotten gains. And six, Barclays' agreement to continue to cooperate with the department in this and any other uh, related matters uh, pursuant to the plea agreement. So, uh, as I said, anyone who's practiced in the anti-corruption or FCPA space will recognize those factors, uh, certainly from prior FCPA enforcement actions, uh, from the declinations, and from uh, the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy announced last uh, November by Rod Rosenstein. So, uh, I think, Jay, on the whole, it's a positive development. 
the commentators you cited, uh, I think, are correct in uh, indicating that this still has some uncertainty uh, because the full parameters have not been fleshed out. Nevertheless, um, as uh, John Cronin, the acting assistant attorney general, said, announcing this policy, uh, that, quote, while the FCPA corporate enforcement of policy only applies in the FCPA context, we intend to embrace, where appropriate, a similar approach and similar principles, rewarding voluntary self-disclosure, full cooperation, and timely and appropriate remediation in other contexts. As we see this fleshed out more, it's going to be uh, interesting to uh, see where it goes. Uh, but I, for one, uh, applaud this initiative by the Department of Justice. So uh, now that we've had pitchers and catchers report and we're getting closer to um spring i, I know that your thoughts turn to the final uh to the um march madness and also some basketball and we got a story that combines basketball in the great state of texas so uh tell us what's happening up the road in dallas well let's uh let's let's make clear a couple of things uh actually three things Number one, the Houston okay. Astros are the world champions in baseball. So let me repeat that. The Houston Astros won the World Series, and we're the champs. And we're the champs uh, at least till next uh, October, November. Uh, so uh, that's number one. Number two, this story does not involve the NBA leading Houston Rockets in, an, uh, in, in any way, shape, or form. So the Houston Rockets said, did I mention that they're leading the uh, NBA uh, right now? Uh, so that would be the team with the best record in the uh, National Basketball Association, the Houston Rockets. They are not a part of this story. Uh, who, who, who is a part of this story is one of the worst teams. And let me repeat that. One of the worst teams in basketball, the Dallas Mavericks. And they're in Dallas, not in Houston. So um, though I think those are three important points to clarify just as uh, we start here. And this is not an equipment issue, Jay, so uh, I don't think we're going to be having a deflate gate again. Um, but it actually was a, a very serious story, and I made light of those uh, three key important factors. But it was a just, I thought, horrific story that Sports Illustrated broke um, around uh, not only sexual harassment, but sexual assault, uh, literally in the Dallas Mavericks front office uh, with the what they call the president, uh, what you and I might more traditionally call the general manager of a club. So um, uh, Sports Illustrated broke the story. Um, the um, general, uh, the seat, the president of the, of the team, uh, this is not Mark Cuban. Let's emphasize he is, there's been no allegations or were no allegations in the story about Mark Cuban, although we've had some subsequent reports uh, that we may have to get into on a later podcast. But uh, Mark Cuban stepped in. He fired the um, uh, several people who had been in, were named in the story, were involved, including the head of HR, including uh, the person, uh, the team beat writer who was accused of sexual assault. The former team president had left previously on an un allegedly unrelated matter and had gone to Under Armour, where he lasted all of 60 days before he left Under Armour. So we don't know if he engaged in the same or similar conduct. And from the uh, compliance slash CCO perspective, uh, Dick Casson, among others, uh, wrote about the Dallas Mavericks offering the position, the first time position of a chief compliance officer. Uh, so the uh, Mark Cuban uh, 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 was very um, 
not only uh, strong in the actions he took, who's very apologetic, was quite stringent and strident that uh, that this would not happen again, and he would take uh, significant steps to clean this mess up. One step is the hiring of a chief compliance officer. So I don't know if if you know you guys are are considering a relocation to Dallas, Jay, but uh, if you are, um, there's I know where there's a, a chief compliance officer position open. All right. Um, so we're going to stay in Texas now. And uh, why don't you tell us about March 6th? So March 6th, Jay, is the anniversary of the fall of the Alamo. It's the most important day in Texas history, although we uh, March 2nd is Texas Independence Day. April 21 is uh, San Jacinto Day, where we actually won our uh, independence. But we all celebrate the Alamo. And uh, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, from the Anglo heritage of uh, many Texans uh, since that time, um, or just generally people like lovable uh, last standers. Um, but the Alamo ranks right up there as one of the great last stand battles, probably number two behind Th- Thermopylae. Um, but the reason uh, we're talking about it on this podcast, Jay, is uh, several years ago at a uh, Compliance Week event, uh, com- uh, the Compliance Week conference, rather, at a panel with Chuck DeRoss and Kara Brockmeyer when they were both with the government, Chuck DeRoss said that uh, he viewed compliance officers like the Alamo. Uh, it was the last, uh, the last line, the last stand, the uh, line in the sand. And so I raised my hand and I said, you know, I appreciate Chuck. That's great. I'm a Texan. Um, uh, really appreciate you acknowledging one of our, our state treasures. But, uh, you know, everybody at the Alamo got slaughtered. And so there was a big yuck and laugh. And, and um, so I wondered, um, is his analogy appropriate, Jay? Uh, because are compliance officers the line in the sand that you can't step over or are compliance officers who do cross that line, or rather who do take a stand, rather, um, and are they the ones who get slaughtered? So um, I wrote about that this week. Uh, you know, obviously there are arguments that go both ways. At the end of the day, though, I think Chuck DeRoss was right, that compliance officers are um, the last stand uh, in many ways at the senior executive level at a corporation. And the la- uh, the, the myth that makes the Alamo legend uh, – so great is the myth, or rather the legend, I should say, of the line in the sand, where three days before the final attack, William Barrett Travis, the commander of the Alamo, drew a line in the sand and said, men, if you stay here, you're probably going to die. And anyone who wants to say they have to cross this line and stand with me. And everyone but one man did. So if you're a chief compliance officer and you have to cross that line, recognizing what it may mean for you, um, I think that uh, Chuck was right. And uh, we both, I think, have known uh, compliance officers who've been terminated. There's certainly been <clears throat> public comment on that uh, over the years. Uh, but if you take this job at, at some point, you, you may be required to stand up and say no uh, and say no and explain why. And I think that uh, Chuck was right with that analogy. So I try to talk about it uh, on every March 6th because I find it to be a, a continuing um, powerful story, and it gives me a way to honor the uh, 180 men who uh, died for uh, my freedom at the Alamo. Well said, Tom. Um, And we're going to tie things back to a little bit GDPR, which uh, Bill Coffin spoke about, and we quoted at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, What did you and Jonathan Armstrong speak about this week on your podcast? 
So um, for listeners to this podcast who may not be aware, I'm doing a countdown to GDPR uh, uh, podcast series with uh, Jonathan Armstrong, well-known compliance practitioner. And we had episode three this week where we focused on the policies and procedures that you need to have in place for the GDPR go live date of uh, May 25, 2018. And Jonathan really suggested uh, two different uh, types of policies and procedures. Your first one is a more general policy where you uh, put it out to everyone, uh, reiterating the basics of data protection and some of the tactics of being aware um, for data protection. Uh, really, it's it's to try to get people to understand the issue and to raise their hand if they have a problem. But you're going to need a second set of policies, which are much more GDPR-focused uh, around uh, creating um, procedures to implement the specific requirements of the GDPR, so <clears throat> right to uh, portability of data, subject access request, where you can ask about uh, the data a company may have on you, the right to be forgotten. All of those uh, need to be in place. You need to have uh, training on those for the people who are going to implement them and uh, need to, to have them ready to go. So uh, a lot of resources available uh, from the Quarterly Law Firm, and I've got links to those in both a podcast and a blog post I wrote about it. Um, so check it out. Great. So uh, why don't you let us know what's up on your uh, new book that's forthcoming, The Complete Compliance Handbook, and then uh, any travel that you have coming up in the next couple of weeks. So um, the uh, pre-sales of the book continue to be uh, brisk, Jay. Uh, the Complete Compliance Handbook, it is my one-volume continuum, compendium rather, and, and a continuum, all things you need to know about compliance or anti-corruption compliance. Uh, it will be published uh, next month by Compliance Week, so I'm greatly looking forward to having that out. Uh, in terms of uh, my travel, the uh, actually I fly today, uh, to head up to your old neck of the woods or one of your neck of the woods, Philadelphia, to speak to the uh, Philadelphia chapter of the ACFE, uh, where Jonathan Marks is presiding over their annual conference. Uh, later this month, I'm flying over to Atlanta uh, to participate in the um, Financial Research Associate Compliance Week th third annual third party risk management and oversight summit. So that's a mouthful, but uh, if you're going to be at either one of those events, uh, stop by. Love to tell you a little bit more about uh, the book and uh, talk some compliance with you. Uh, what about uh, and you then is anything coming up? No, no, I'm uh, I'm just enjoying uh, being at home with the girls. I was going to say I heard a rumor that you and Mr. Marks may be visiting Southern California in the spring. Is any uh, clarity on those dates yet? Uh, no, we haven't uh, been able to uh, get that. Unfortunately, my trip yesterday was canceled due to the snowstorm. So uh, I'm going <clears> to <throat> fly in late, speak tomorrow, then fly out. So uh, we'll have to work on that uh, at a little bit later date. Great. So um, I think that's all what we, we've got for you today. But uh, once again, you can see the uh, breadth of the different things uh, happening in the compliance, ethics, and FCPA world. And uh, although we are at only uh, early March, there still seems to be uh, many developments at, afoot. And, uh, oh, the last thing, did you watch the Oscars last week, Tom? You know, I missed them. Okay. Watch the Rockets. Uh, I was... Yeah, well, I think uh, as as the Academy's done for the last couple of years, they did a pretty good job of uh, divvying up the awards and kind of like with AYSO, uh, everybody got a trophy and got to take one home. 
So uh, next year, hopefully you and I will get a little bit more involved because I know we used to uh, have our picks and, and, and do a, a session on that. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 93, for the week ending March 9th, the Hell Hath No Fury edition, or watch out for the nuns with some rulers, because if you're well smart Fargo, they're going to smack you on the knuckles. This is Tom Fox again, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast, as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly FCPA compliance and ethics wrap-up. Also, if you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thank you again for listening to this episode of this week in FCPA. I hope you'll join us again next week when we review the week's FCPA compliance and ethics comings and goings. This week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.